Amen. We just couldn't imagine coming back together and not singing. We missed a lot of things during this time away, and one of them is just lifting our voices together to sing and praise the Lord. I think I've had even some people who say, well, I don't sing, who said, I really miss the singing. At least they can sit there and worship by hearing others sing. So that was great this morning, and it was just so very special. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, as we continue in our study of the sufficiency of Christ and the supremacy of Christ. Um, I had Pastor Michael read a, a Psalm 1 for a reason, because that kind of ties in, I forgot to mark it, so I'm going to mark it so I can get to it quickly in a minute, kind of ties in with what we want to talk about this morning in the, what Paul is saying to the church at Colossae. He is, he's talking about a church that is growing, that is maturing, that is being strengthened, but yet who is having false teachers come in and try to lead them astray. And he's going to refer to that very ex explicitly in our passage this morning. And, and, you know, he warned the Ephesian elders of that. He said in, in Acts chapter 20, when he was leaving Ephesus, he said to those Ephesian elders, he said, listen, there's going to come a time when people are going to come in like savage wolves among you, seeking to lead you astray. Don't listen to them. That's the Haynes paraphrase, but that's what Paul said. They're, they're going to want to tear you apart, tear you apart from the body, or get you to go back and infiltrate the body with our false teaching. Don't let them do that, and don't be guilty of that. So Paul is concerned about that in, in chapter 2 of the book of Colossians. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. We might not even get all this done today, but we'll come back to it next week if we don't. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen my face, to seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him 
having forgiven us all our trespasses, all our sins, by, the canceling, the rec- by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Over these last several weeks, we've seen much about Paul's ministry, especially these last two weeks. We've looked at Paul's ministry, not only to the Colossians, but in general. But Paul has given the, the principle of, of, principles of his ministry to the Colossians in these passages. First thing we saw in chapter 1, verse 24, was that Paul's ministry was a ministry of suffering. He said, I'm suffering for the cause of Christ for your sake. He was not suffering because he enjoyed it. He was not suffering because it was something he wanted to have. But he was suffering for the sake of those who are the disciples of Jesus Christ. By my suffering, Paul said, you will be strengthened. By my suffering, you will see an example of what it means to follow Christ. And so Paul said, my ministry, and I understand this and I accept this, is a ministry of suffering. Then last week we saw he talked about it was a ministry of preaching or proclamation. In verses 25 through 29, he talked about how he he is proclaiming the mystery that was hidden for, for ages and generations, but is now revealed to his saints. He said, I am proclaiming this mystery. Now, he's going to talk about the mystery again in our passage today because that is an important concept to understand. A mystery, quite simply, is simply this. Something that has been hidden for ages but is now revealed in Christ. It's not a mystery any longer because by God's Word and by God's Spirit and by God's incarnation, He has revealed the essence of that mystery. And so He is making that mystery. That mystery is now known to the saints. But these people in Colossae who are trying to come in and distort the gospel are are saying Christ is good and Christ is important, but there's more than just Christ. It's good that you've trusted Christ, but now you've got to have more. We we live in a day of a a uh, pseudo-Gnosticism, a a uh, pseudo-Judaizers almost within our culture today who say, yes, Jesus is important, but you've got to have more than just Jesus. He's not enough. Well, Paul would, uh, Paul would emphatically call that a heresy. He would say, you don't need Jesus plus anything else. You need Jesus and Jesus alone, and when you have him, you have everything. And that's what he's going to talk about today in this passage. So let's look at what else Paul says about his ministry. It's a ministry of suffering, it's a ministry of preaching, but now we see two more characteristics in this passage. First of all, it's a ministry of intercession and pastoral concern. Paul gives the picture of a pastor's heart here as clear as anything you will ever see in verses 1 through 5. He said, I want you to know how great a struggle that I have for you. He struggles on their behalf. That word struggle is an athletic term coming right out of the the early uh, athletic games and what would be considered the precursor to what we call today the Olympics. It's a word that's argon, which which literally means where we get our word agony from. He said, I am struggling on your behalf. Some translations uh, translate that fighting on your behalf. I fight on your behalf. Or I have great agony on your behalf. But he says, I want you to know this. I am struggling for your spiritual good. I think a lot of people don't understand that about a pastor's heart. 
I'm glad you're here at 8.30. I can get all this emotion out of the way before I get to 10.30 and we're on, on the Internet. You know, I, I, I think most people don't understand a pastor's heart, how we struggle when you struggle. We hurt when you hurt. We, we are in pain when you're not growing spiritually. We are in pain. We, we struggle when we see worship being subjugated to something else and other things being made more important than being with the body of Christ. And, and I hope if anything else has happened during these eight weeks of, of quarantine and, and still a partial quarantine that we'll see for many weeks to come, I hope the one thing that has, has become a reality in your life is that you have wanted worship and wanted to be together with a body in worship more than any other time in your whole life. But Paul says, I struggle on your behalf. A pastor struggles on behalf of his, of his congregation, of his, of his family, of, of what might be called his flock as he's an under-shepherd. There are many times when struggles are made in prayer for you that you don't even know about. You probably think the only time we ever are really thinking about it is when we see you're not here and see you're in the week and say, why weren't you in church on Sunday? And that kind of comes across, I know, as, a, as in our self-indulgent, self-centered generation of saying, well, that's none of your business where I was. Yes, it is my business. Yes, it is the pastor's business. Because the right of Hebrews says that, that, that you ought to listen to those who are your elders, your leaders over you. you it, Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews, I think Luke even used the word there, you ought to obey your leaders because they have, they have responsibility over your souls. If I don't know where you are spiritually, I can't have responsibility over your souls. And then he goes on to say that your pastor, your elder, is going to give a great, going to be held with a greater responsibility, a greater accountability because of that. Paul says, you haven't seen my face, you don't, you've not met me face to face, but I struggle on your behalf. I fight for you in prayer. I fight for you spiritually. Then he prays that their hearts might be encouraged in verse 2. A, a pastor wants to see his people's hearts encouraged. Now, a lot of times we think of encouragement as being something that's always you know, happy and joyous and and, and encouraging you to say, oh, it's going to be better, it's going to get better, you're doing a good job, whatever. That's not exactly what Paul is talking about here. The word he uses here for encourage can have really several meanings. It can have the meaning of being comforted. I pray that your hearts may be comforted by the Holy Spirit, comforted by the presence of God. And the word could also be translated strengthened. I'm praying that you are comforted. I'm praying that you are encouraged because I'm praying that you are being strengthened by God's work through Christ in your life. That's an important part of a pastoral ministry. I want to see you strengthened. I want to see you growing. I want to see you encouraged because God is doing a work in your life. There's, he goes on to say that your hearts be encouraged and be knit together in love. We talk a lot about unity around here. We talk a lot about the, our union with Christ. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago in a sermon, the importance of that being central to Christian life. And, and Paul told the Ephesian Christians to guard the unity that is in Christ Jesus. We don't produce union. We are brought into union with one another when we come into Christ, and that puts us in the body of Christ, and so we are automatically made in union with one another. Did you know that? That's our covenant relationship. 
And, and so we don't make the union. That union is made by God through that relationship in Christ that we share with one another, and we come together and we are in union with one another. We are in covenant with one another. Paul doesn't say produce a union. Paul says guard the unity of the union that is already there. And, and you do that by being knit together in love. Knit together in love. Now, I happen to believe that we're one of the most loving congregations I've ever seen. We care for one another. We love one another. We don't do it perfectly. In fact, we do it very imperfectly many times. But this being knit together in love, that unity is guarded as we show love for one another. And what did Jesus himself say in John chapter 13? This is the mark of the believer. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. Not if you wear a cross around your neck. Not if you have a bumper sticker on your car. Not if you go to church every Sunday. But no, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That will issue forth in guarding the unity. We know in that same place, and he said, said I, Father, make them one even as you and I are one. You're in me, and I'm in you, and they're in us, and we're all one together. That's the union. Now, we are to guard the unity by loving one another. And Paul prays that for the church there. And then he prays that they might see the centrality of Christ and Christ alone. Again, he comes back to that idea, it's not Christ plus anything. It's Christ and Christ alone. Look at, look at what he says there in verse, the second part of verse 2, right on through verse 5. He says, listen, you're knit together in love. Then he says, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. I pray that you'll have the knowledge of God's mystery. And what is that mystery? It's Christ himself. It's not Christ in some esoteric gift. It's not Christ in some new ability. It's not Christ in any. It's knowing Christ. The mystery is Christ and Christ alone. And he says, listen, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I guess Paul is saying, some people might come to you with an argument that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. But it doesn't. Don't let people delude you lead you astray with things that seem so plausible. If you want to know what some plausible arguments are, go on and watch Christian TV for about 15 minutes. Don't go any further than that because you'll get deluded and polluted. But, but for 15 minutes, you'll see all sorts of plausible arguments. One preacher not long ago said, man, I, you know, I've got to if you want to really be spiritual, if you want to be blessed of God, send me money so I can buy a bigger jet and I can take the gospel all around the world more quickly. Well, there's one thing true. He could get around the world more quickly. But it really has nothing to do with the gospel. But he blesses you. He says you will be blessed if you give to me. And there's no scriptural authority for that, folks. But he deluded and led astray many, many people. He said, for though I am absent body, I'm with you in the spirit. I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And so he has a, he has a ministry of intercession and pastoral prayer, a pastoral concern. But then he immediately goes to a fourth characteristic of his ministry, and that is a ministry of exhortation. He is exhorting in verses uh, 6 and 7. 
He says there, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Rooted, built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and abounding in thanksgiving. A ministry of exhortation. Walk as you have received. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? Well, you received on the basis of His grace by faith, didn't you? You received Him by trusting Him, and and you you saw that change in your life, and you saw a a rebirth, Paul calls it, and Jesus calls it. You're born again in the newness of life. And, and, And Paul says here, in that same way that you receive Christ, walk in Christ. What does walk mean? Well, walk means lifestyle. Walk means daily living. It means living life to the fullest in Christ. As a matter of fact, one of the words he uses back up there, he says that that you may have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in Christ. And and, and the word treasure there can be translated wealth. It is in the New American Standard. And he's not talking about gold. He's not talking about silver. But he's talking about there's great treasure in knowing Christ and growing in Christ. And here he's saying the way you received him, the way you were born again, is the same way you continue to walk and live the Christian life, by faith in Christ and Christ alone. You didn't receive him by saying, Jesus, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to give $100,000 to the poor. Doesn't that make you happy, Jesus? Well, it wouldn't be a bad thing to do, I suppose, but that's not anything to add to yourself. That, that's no way to receive Christ. It's not, okay, Jesus, I'm going to receive you, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to, I'm going to be in church every Sunday. And I know that will solidify my salvation. No, it won't. It's Christ and Christ alone. So you walk in the Christian life not by saying, okay, now I'm going to, uh, I'm going to continue to trust Jesus, but I'm going to add these other things to my life. No, Paul says, as you received him, you remain true to Christ as Lord. I love the way he put it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians 2, 20 said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul talks about in this passage when he gets down to the latter part of this and talks about what God has done for the believer in Christ Jesus. What, what God did with those six or seven things that he, he just delineates in rapid fire there. When he gets to that, he, he's saying all of that was done when you came to faith in Christ because you were crucified with him. And Paul says, when he says, I, I no longer live, some of the Galatian Christians or some of the Colossian Christians, or even you and me could say, but Paul, you're still standing right there. You're still writing a letter. You're still doing all the things that you did before the Damascus Road, before you came to faith in Christ. What do you mean you no longer live? It's not me. It's Christ living in me. It's the power of Christ energizing me. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the goodness of His gospel, the goodness of His grace changing my life. And changing me completely. And now, I, what I live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me so much that he gave himself for me to redeem me. So Paul says, listen, I exhort you, remain true to Jesus as Lord. Don't water it down by trying to add something to it, but follow him as Lord. And he says, continue giving thanks. Continue giving thanks. Continually giving thanks. Abounding in thanksgiving, Paul says. Paul loves that word abounding. If you go and just kind of follow through some of Paul's letters, you'll find that abounding all over the place. Talking about God's abounding grace and we are abounding in our walk with Him. and we, It just means we're growing and we're maturing and we're, we're continuing to show great thanksgiving. You go over to the book of Thessalonians. One of the things the Apostle Paul says is, a mar, is God's will for our lives. You know, we all struggle what is God's will. Paul says, listen, this is God's will for your life. Give thanks in everything. Give thanks in everything. In the middle of a coronavirus pandemic, give thanks to God for His grace. Abound in thanksgiving during this time. Get your eyes off of the circumstances and get your eyes on what He has done and is doing and will continue to do until you see Him in glory. And I think in giving thanks to the Lord, it's, it's don't stop. You know, don't stop living in order to stay alive. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. Walk in Christ. Trust in Christ. Believe in Him above everything else. And then Paul says, I want you to know this. There is a danger in your midst. He goes back to that. In this exhortation, he goes back to talking about the danger of heresy. He said, see to it that no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits or elemental principles of the world, not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who, who, who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul says a mouthful there. He says, listen, there are those who are going to lead you astray by philosophy and empty or vain deceit. Human philosophy. Now, I studied philosophy. I studied Christian philosophy in seminary. I read Christian philosophers. One of my dearest friends and church members back in, uh, in Orlando, Florida was Dr. Ronald Nash. He was a Christian philosopher. He had given his life to philosophy. Nothing evil about philosophy. What's evil is where the focus is in the philosophy. If it's not Christ then it's, it's not good philosophy. If it's in human-centered philosophy, man-centered philosophy, then it's what Paul is warning against here. He said, this is a, this is, don't be captivated, don't be taken prisoner by a human philosophy that is according to the traditions of man. A lot of people today are being led astray by the traditions of man. A lot of people today are being led astray by what seems reasonable in their own eyes. But it's totally contrary to the truth of God's Word. I don't care what you watch on television. I don't care if you watch MSNBC or you watch Fox News. I don't care if you watch CNN or NBC or, or whatever you watch. I don't care what you watch. If you're not filtering everything that's being said there, 
through the lens of the Word of God, I want you to know you're being deceived by some sort of human philosophy. Left, right, or center, doesn't matter. There's a philosophy out there, human philosophy, that wants to captivate you and lead you away from Christ. And Paul says, don't let that happen. Don't follow after the traditions of men or man. Or after the elementary, elemental principles or elementary principles or spirits of this world. One translator translated this, don't be led captive by the ABCs of life. The basics, the, the, the minimalist view. And Then he gives the, the main point. He says, don't be led by any philosophy that is not after Christ, not pursuing Christ. Not desiring Him. That's what He says. According to elemental principles, according to human tradition, and not according to Christ. That will captivate you, and that will lead you astray. He makes three profound affirmations. Three profound affirmations in one verse there. In, 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 well, two verses, verse 9 and 10. He says, For in Him... The whole fullness of deity dwells. He says, I I want you to understand, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He is absolute deity. It's the full, complete, absolute deity of Christ. He's God in the flesh. God with flesh and bone. God walking on the face of the earth. The creator, sustainer, and redeemer of all of creation and all of the universe, right here among us, Paul says. He is fully deity. He's full deity. But he also talks about the real humanity of Christ. He says, uh, he not only is he is in him the full, the full deity dwelling, but the full deity dwells bodily. It's not a phantom or an appearance. It's a reality. He is man. He is God-man. He is fully God, fully human. And then verse 10. And you have been filled in Him. You have been filled. You've been given everything you need. You have seen the full sufficiency of the glorious Christ. You as a believer have been filled up, not by a lot of stuff, but you've been filled by Christ. So walk in Him. So trust in Him. And Paul talks about there the absolute sufficiency, completeness of Christ. He is head of all rule and all authority. He's head over all nations. He's head over all rulers. He's head over all authorities. He is the ultimate authority. He is the source of truth and the source of absolute truth and the source of of where we must live. In Him as believers. And then just sort of as a reminder, he says, here's what God's done for you in Christ. These people that are coming in, kind of wanting you to add something to Jesus. Some of them want you to get circumcised. Some Some of them want you to go through Jewish rituals like circumcision. He said, let me tell you something. You have been circumcised, cutting away the flesh, not by hands, not by a ritual, but by Jesus Christ, by God in 
His work in your life. Circumcised, made without hands, putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That is the, the circumcision of the heart. You've been changed. You don't need another ritual. He, he, he's done that. He, you, you've been buried with Him in baptism. Next week at the 8.30 service, Lord willing, we're going to have a baptism of Samantha Shannon and we're going to go in the waters and, and that's going to that's going to demonstrate what's already happened in her life. She's already been baptized by His Spirit in, in Him, and he's been, she's been buried with Him in baptism. We'll demonstrate that. We'll illustrate that. We'll picture that next week. But one who is in Christ has been buried, but not only buried, raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. And, and so we, we, we die to self, as Paul said to the Galatian Christians, I have died to myself, no, I no longer live, but we've been raised to newness of life. Fourth, we've been made alive together. There's that word again that Pastor Todd spoke of when he spoke of, the, uh, uh, of that passage that he read for our call to worship we do it together and that, that word has such a more profound meaning now to me that it ever has we're together we're made alive together we're not alive in isolation we're not alive to be separated from one another we're being alive we're alive god made us alive together with christ having forgiven us all our sins fifthly canceling the record of debt that stood against us a legal document of debt a debt that we could not pay save with our own lives being totally put forth away from God but he bore the price he paid the ransom he brought life canceled out our record of debt setting it aside by nailing it to the cross and then disarming all the rulers and authorities and declaring his authority once and for all through his work at the cross. Paul says, listen, I pray for you. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be strengthened. I want you to be knit together in love. I want you to have a knowledge of God's mystery like you've never had before. I want you to see Christ in a newness in this coronavirus era. And I want you to be... See him as totally sufficient, totally supreme over anything and everything else. When we sang that song a few minutes ago, All I Have is Christ, we declared a great truth that he is all we have and he is all we need. He is sufficient and he is supreme. I love seeing those words. All I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. I don't need the world. I don't need rituals. I just need Christ. And I've got Him if I am in Him as a believer. Folks, put your trust in Him. As your pastor, for three more weeks, as your pastor, I beg you, as Paul begged the Colossians, filter things through the Word. Don't filter the Word through things. Look to Him. Trust in Him. Walk with Him. 
and, and be like that first psalm says, like a tree planted by a stream, drawing nourishment from Christ, drawing nourishment from His Word, so that when the storms come, you will not fall. When the storms come, you will stand firm. The storms are among us, folks. Stand firm in Christ and Christ alone. You know why? Because He's a sure and steady anchor, according to Scripture. And after we pray, we're going to sing that together. Would you pray with me?